Hey out there, everyone. Thank you for joining me for episode 38 of the Mark Geis Show. Uh, Got a ton to talk about. It's been about a week since I put out my last episode, and there's obviously more than I can cover in 30 to 45 minutes, which is where I'm going to try to aim to be at for this show. So I'm going to hopefully put out one either tomorrow, today's Friday, uh, February 3rd, so hopefully put one out. Saturday the 4th or Sunday the 5th, maybe both if I have enough time to do it, but there's a ton I want to cover and I know I'm not going to be able to in this episode and I know that I was slacking off for the last week, so I'm going to get right into it. I I know what I need to talk about the most is Donald Trump's executive order on, on immigration in the United States or entrance into the United States and it's restricting for a period of 90 days people coming in from seven countries overseas and what's the significance of that what's my opinion on this and I think I've got some pretty unique and interesting things to say on this that I haven't really heard anybody else say so first this is what the executive order itself says first of all it's called the protecting the nation from foreign terrorist entry into the United States executive order and here's the exact language about restricting entrance of uh, citizens from particular countries or people coming from particular countries. So it's section three of the executive order and it talks about suspension of issuance of visas and other immigration benefits to nationals of countries of particular concern. Part A, the Secretary of Homeland Security in consultation with the Secretary of State and the Director of National Intelligence shall immediately conduct a review to determine the information needed from any country to adjudicate any visa admission or other benefit under the INA adjudications in order to determine that the individual seeking the benefit is who the individual claims to be and is not a security or public safety threat. Um, And then so going down to Part C, because it references Part A, I wanted to read that first. It says to temporarily reduce investigative burdens on relevant agencies during the review period described in subsection A of this section to ensure the proper review and maximum utilization of available resources for the screening of foreign nationals and to ensure that adequate standards are established to prevent infiltration by foreign terrorists or criminals, da-da-da-da-da. I hereby proclaim that the immigrant and non-immigrant entry into the United States of aliens from countries referenced to in section da-da-da-da-da would be detrimental to the interests of the United States, and I hereby suspend entry into the United States as immigrants and non-immigrants of such persons for 90 days from the date of this order, excluding those foreign nationals traveling on diplomatic visas, North Atlantic Treaty Organization visas, C2 visas for travel to the United Nations, and G1, G2, G3, and G4 visas. And the countries referenced that it says there are Iraq, Syria, Sudan, Iran, Somalia, Libya, and Yemen. So those are the seven countries that everybody's talking about right now. And this really unleashed mayhem. I mean, people immediately were were up in arms against the Trump administration. There were protests in New York City, protests related airports all over the country. And People are talking about this being just the beginning of Trump's ousting of Muslims from the United States. I mean, really going into full hysteria mode over this executive order and what it means. The funny thing is these seven countries actually are the same seven countries. Well, they were among the they were among the countries that Obama back in uh, in I think it was early in 2016 made restrictions to the visa waiver program, which is where certain countries, people from certain countries could enter the U.S. with no visa whatsoever. And these seven countries were among those that the Obama administration said no longer can be fully a part of this program, that they would have restrictions put on them. So these countries had been identified in the past. But my three reactions to this initially, and it's going to be Hard. It, it, it's hard to think of all these three being in my head simultaneously, but I did think all three of these things, and I think that they do make sense together. And those three things are, I think that this executive order is unconstitutional, and that's contrary to what a lot of people out there that I respect and that I listen to 
have said on the issue, but it's not for the reasons that you think it's unconstitutional. So bear with me on that one. I'm going to explain it in a minute. Two, people are making far too big of a deal out of this news, out of this executive order. And three, I think that this is bad policy. So first I want to talk about the constitutionality of this executive order. Why do I think this is unconstitutional? And it goes back to a strict interpretation of the Constitution. So if I go back, I'm going to read directly from the Constitution and what powers it gives the federal government. First, what powers it gives Congress, and then what powers does it give the president in relation to those powers of Congress. And then we'll talk about how that relates to state powers. So in Article 1, Section 8, it states, and this is uh, the legislative branch, this is all the, these are all the powers of Congress, Article 1, Section 8. It says that Congress has, quote, or has, has the power to, quote, establish an, an uniform rule of naturalization. And that's it. That's all that it says about immigration in the entire Constitution. And it's about naturalization, not about immigration, not about entry into the United States. So it's an uniform rule of naturalization. And I hate saying and uniform, but that's the text of the Constitution. I'm kind of glad that's been eradicated from the English language over the years. We now say a uniform. Uh, so then what powers does the Constitution give the president in relation to those powers? The president's powers are very limited if you read the Constitution. And for this, you've got to go to Article 2 of the Constitution. And this, what I'm reading, is from Section 3. Quote, he shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. So that's all that you can construe from everything in the Constitution as to the powers that the president may have in relation to immigration. But when you look at what Congress's powers are, they don't have any powers related to immigration. They have powers related to naturalization. So immigration in terms of people becoming naturalized citizens of the United States Congress has power to make rules regarding this. But this was an issue back then. You know, this was debated by Thomas Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton. They discussed it in the Federalist Papers as to, you know, what's the best trajectory for the United States? Thomas Jefferson early on was, he was more of a proponent of open borders and virtually unlimited migration to the United States because he thought that the United States needed more population, basically. And he ended up, you know, walking that back a little bit because the the U.S. population grew so much during the early years of, uh, of the country. But this was talked about. Immigration was an issue back then. And it's telling they did not put anything about entry into the United States in the Constitution. All they talk about is naturalization. And so I know that within about the last 100 to 125 years, basically the executive and legislative branches of the federal government have been given plenary power, which is basically unlimited power in terms of immigration. And that's been the legal doctrine, that's been the legal precedent for the last 125 years or so. But for the first hundred years or so of the United States existence, the federal government had virtually no powers in terms of who could enter the United States, in terms of migration. They had the power stated there in the Constitution as to what you needed to do to become a citizen of the United States, to become a naturalized citizen of the United States, and those needed to be uniform throughout the entire country. But the federal government was not restricting migration in the United States. That was completely up to the states. And the states could have their own rules as to who could come in. It was up to the states. And I think if you if you went back to when the Constitution was ratified and you told the states at that time that eventually you were going to have federal agents within your state saying who can and who cannot enter your state from Canada or who can and cannot get off a boat into your state. There's going to be somebody from the federal government there saying who can and cannot come in. And you are not going to have any power as to who can come into your state. It's going to be completely up to the federal government. They're going to make the rules. You are not going to be at the table, essentially. 
And that's where we've gotten to today, where the federal government, they are the ones with customs officials. They are the ones determining who does and who does not come into the country. And as a result, who does and does not come into a, to a particular state. And I think this is a perversion of federalism, the federalism that was envisioned by the founding fathers. And I think even Alexander Hamilton probably would have cringed at what we've become today, kind of how we've progressed to this point where we have one central authority saying who can and cannot come into this country and making all of the rules basically and basically saying through Arizona versus the United States, the recent case, well, relatively recent, it was in 2010, uh, but basically the result of this case was that the feds preempted state laws and restrictions on migration into their state. Ultimately, the federal government has the power to determine immigration law in a particular state. And I obviously think this is contrary to the Constitution. And as a result, I mean, as a result of this reasoning, all immigration laws, all non-naturalization laws passed by the federal government have been unconstitutional. So all of the laws being talked about, you know, going back for the last century, all of these are unconstitutional through this line of reasoning. But if we accept that any of those prior laws are constitutional, so that's the only way that this argument works, that Trump's executive order here is unconstitutional. It makes all prior, all prior non-naturalization immigration legislation unconstitutional. But if we accept so if we don't take a strict interpretation of the Constitution and we say that all of that legislation has been constitutional, there's no case against this executive order. So if we're not saying that that, that that prior legislation is unconstitutional, we shouldn't be having a discussion about the legality of what Trump is doing. In the last hundred years, there is plenty of precedent of immigration being restricted in this way. And it can be restricted basically for any reason whatsoever based on this, this prior legislation for the president to keep us safe. And whatever that means, it, it doesn't mean everybody has to agree with it. The president has the right, according to that prior legislation, and the Congress and the executive basically being given full power over immigration, the president can decide who can come into the country, basically. So the only argument against the unconstitutionality here, I think, that is consistent and logical is that argument that I presented before. Pointing to the First Amendment doesn't work. Pointing to the 14th Amendment doesn't work. You know, all, all that smoke and mirrors that I've seen people trying to throw, it doesn't work. And the 10th Amendment is what gives the states this power. And the 10th Amendment was, those are probably the most important words in the Constitution. If you talk to the Founding Fathers, the states that ratified the Constitution, the text of the Tenth Amendment, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. And everything about immigration except naturalization is not discussed in the Constitution. It is not delegated to the United States. It is not delegated to the central government. So it is a power of the states and of the people. And what we can have here, I've talked about decentralization a lot, why I think it's beneficial, why I think we need it with how large our country is, with how diverse it is, with how differently people think on the coast versus in the Midwest versus in the South. I mean, there's, there is such diversity of opinion all throughout the country that I think the only way for us to continue is to look to the wisdom of our founding fathers. And, you know, is the Constitution perfect? No. But I think operating within a system of rules, within a system of expressly delegated powers and responsibilities, is the best way to go for a federal government. And for a federal government, especially, that's trying to govern a territory as large as ours, with 330 million people. I think this is the only way to do it. And we can basically have the 50 states be able to impose their own immigration laws, be able to impose who can and cannot settle here. 
And I know that that's not perfect. That's not going to make everybody happy because you'll have people who are very anti-immigration, very scared of Islamic terrorism saying, well, then you could have, you could have terrorists come into these other states and then come into my state and come and commit terrorist attacks in the middle of the United States or in the, in the middle of my state, wherever that happens to be. Or you may have people who are very much in favor of unlimited immigration saying, well, then only certain states are going to be able to accept immigrants. And that's not fair to immigrants that they can't choose from all the states to come into. I know it doesn't make everybody happy. Nothing makes everybody happy. And it should be obvious with the reaction to this Trump news that nothing is ever going to make everybody happy that comes from the federal level. What you can do is you can settle in a state where your ideas align best with the way that it's governed. So California, if they want to take in unlimited Syrian refugees, and if they want to bear the cost, if they want to extend welfare benefits to these refugees, have at it. You know, it it does not matter to me what California wants to do. I don't think that because a certain critical mass of the country doesn't want Syrian refugees coming in, that doesn't mean, or that it should mean that no state can bring them in. Let California bring them in and let's see how it works out there. If Arizona wants to be very tough on immigration from Mexico, let them do it. Don't have the feds go in and dictate to them how to run their own state, how to protect their own people, because only their people know how they want to be governed and how those people want to be governed, how the people of Arizona want to be governed may be very different than the average opinion of the entire United States. So I kind of was talking about two extreme ends of the spectrum, but I think that's what you would see happen. And we can see which side ultimately ends up winning. You know, the, the, the states that bring in the most immigrants, do they end up becoming far richer than other states that heavily restrict immigration? Or do the ones that restrict immigration end up being far richer and less crime-ridden than those that accept lots of immigrants? Only time could tell. But even if you knew the immigration policy, the, the perfect immigration policy that was going to bring you the most benefit for the country as a whole, you were still going to have people in certain parts of the country up in arms about whatever that rule is. Even if you knew, even if we had infinite wisdom and we could tell from the federal government level, this is the policy that's going to make our people the most well off. There still is going to be dissension. There still are, there still is going to be, or there still are going to be groups of people out there that are pissed off, you know, for no better way to describe it. People that are acting like their country is fundamentally changing. That is always going to happen. So I think the only way to do this is to go back to a system of federalism where the federal government does have certain enumerated powers and you know they can they can express broad ex- they can have broad expression of those powers but everything else is reserved for the states and for the people and you will have people voting with their feet basically and moving to the states that are most successful and the states that best reflect maybe the average the average of all people in the United States kind of the happy medium would tend to get more residents bring in more tax dollars more prosperity, um, and the policy itself would be bringing more prosperity, you would think. Uh, so there would be kind of a competition among the 50 states for who could have the best immigration policy. And whether the best immigration policy is the most inclusive or the most exclusive, only time could really tell. And you could choose to be where you want to be. And I hate seeing, you know, even when I agree with something that the federal government does, which I will say isn't that often. But even when I do, if I see a lot of people that I care about, that it pains them to watch what their federal government's doing because it's so antithetical to what they believe and what they want to see happen. You know, I feel for them. I don't want them to feel that because I know how that feels when the federal government does something that I completely disagree with or that is completely antithetical to what I believe it. I don't want people to constantly be experiencing that. I think the only way to do that is to bring power back to the state level. And the federal government can continue to do, can continue to perform its enumerated powers, 
but the states will be able to have broad authority over what they should have broad authority over based on the Constitution. Not this expanded, you know, using interstate commerce and using the general welfare clause to where basically the federal government can do whatever it wants. It can regulate every activity in the United States. I want people to live in places where, you know, their opinions are better reflected. And I think you would see that in a system where states had more power. And I think that's the United States that the founders had had in their minds. They did not want us to become a country with basically 50 provinces where there wasn't much difference between the different states. Or if there is, there's some cosmetic difference. I think there always will be some cultural differences among the different states. But in terms of governance and how free you are in one particular area versus another, there's not a huge variation among the most free to the least free states in the union. There, There really is not. But if you look back at that point in time, you still had people identifying with their state. You know, their state was their country. And they agreed that, okay, my country is going to become part of this confederacy, basically. But my state is my state. And, you know, these are people with a culture generally in common. And they can choose how they want to be ruled. And they can feel much more like they have power over their own affairs and over how how they are going to be governed. So I think that's my position on this issue that not just Trump's executive order, but Obama's executive orders on the issue, prior federal legislation, I believe it's all unconstitutional. But for those of you that want to maintain past legislation, think that past immigration legislation is fantastic, but this current executive order is horrible, I don't think you have any any ground to stand on. Yet, try to stand on that ground they are and they have. So the second point I wanted to make here is that I think the reaction to this has been way over the top with how many unconstitutional things our federal government has done and continues to do every day. The fact that people are getting up in arms over this, which I really don't think is that consequential. You know, I don't think I don't think it's a fundamental change in the way America's operating or anything like that. Yeah, I'll stand there with you and say this is unconstitutional for those reasons that I mentioned, but then I'm going to go back and I'm going to say probably 90% of the things that you have supported over the years, you know, if it's somebody from the left, maybe go back to the New Deal or to the Great Society programs or anything like that and talk about how all of that was unconstitutional, then they're probably not going to be standing with me anymore. But acting like this is the beginning of some ethnic cleansing or some sort of policy to to move us in that kind of direction. I mean, even bringing out that kind of language, I just don't see any indication that that's happening. I think it's hysteria and I think it's overreaction. Yes, I'll criticize it, but this is not some fundamental change in the way that we're operating. So one of my favorite people on Twitter, and I say favorite in terms of me reading and getting very frustrated at reading, and I try not to respond to him much. Sometimes I can't help myself but I, I think I've referenced him on this show before, Umer Haik, who's an economist, who's now become this quote-unquote expert on fascism and how fascism comes about. And he's been generally wrong about everything over the last 6 to 12 months. Um, I think he did think that Trump had a far better chance than most other people were giving him credit for. But he talked about Brexit as being basically the end of Europe and, and, you know, the end of the United Kingdom and nothing was ever going to be the same again. He was talking about Brexit in that language and he's been using that same language to describe the Trump presidency. And his reaction to this executive order, I think, perfectly embodies that hysteria that I was talking about. Just these pure hysterics. So here's just some quotes that I pulled quickly from his timeline, read through it for a minute or two. I love it. Pundits spit hairs over jurisprudence like it was 1776. Meanwhile, Nazis in the White House literally start ethnic cleansing. Another one. Autocrat fires attorney general for defending constitution instead of seeking guidance on legality of autocracy. Here's another one. When fascists are literally drafting policy by fiat, a policy is not, quote, trial balloon, end quote, for a coup. Democracy is already subverted reality. 
Here's another one. In the first week, they came for the Muslims. In the second, they came for the gays. If you can't see where this is going, slap yourself. Yet another one. Note that yesterday's constitutional crisis hasn't been solved, just swept under the rug. That's how they win, one flouting of law at a time. And here's the last one I pulled. If we're too polite to talk about the obvious, ethnic cleansing, the fascist alt-right, we let them win. Silence and negligence legitimize. So, I don't even really know how to describe everything that he said there. Um, ethnic cleansing said multiple times. and There were many instances of him, him using that terminology. And I just pulled a couple examples. Uh, but using ethnic cleansing, fascism, fascism, fascism. And him trying to claim that he's some sort of defender of the Constitution is just hilarious. And anybody trying to use the Constitution to defend against what Trump is doing now. When you just sat idly by and watched Barack Obama destroy the Constitution for eight years. You just watched him continue to run roughshod over it, and you didn't care because you liked what he was doing. You agreed with what he was doing, but you did not care at all about the legality of what it was. The ends justified the means. And, you know, I can criticize conservatives going back to under George Bush. They supported the same things. But we're directly coming off eight years of the Barack Obama presidency, and all he did was violate the Constitution. This is not some new constitutional crisis that has come up because of Trump's executive order on immigration, or really any of Trump's other actions. Because of the precedent that's already been set, and the Supreme Court has just rubber-stamped all of it, because of what's already happened, you cannot go to the constitutional argument. You have no ground to stand on. You can't just point to it when it happens to suit your argument every once in a while and then completely ignore it the rest of the time. And like I said before, the right is guilty of this as well. But Umer, he's he's touted um, universal health care run by the federal government, which is blatantly unconstitutional. He's talked about crippling climate standards imposed by the federal government. Once again, blatantly unconstitutional. I can name any of a number of things that he supported that have been blatantly unconstitutional. And most of the people reacting this way are the same way. Now, there are, there are some libertarians that are consistent in this way, you know, somewhat like I just have here. I talked about the unconstitutionality of this, but I haven't tried to claim all these things that I want to see happen that are also unconstitutional. You know, I'm being consistent here. The left is as inconsistent as they can be. And it's always the ends justify the means. And I talked about all the stuff they threw at the wall to try to keep Trump from getting into office. It was, okay, we'll try this. That doesn't work. Okay, we'll try this. It was one thing after another to try to prevent Trump from getting into office because they didn't like it. And I have to admire their perseverance. I have to admire how it always is that way. You know, we will get our means or we will get our ends no matter what we have to do. You know, no matter what rules we have to break, we will get there. I have to admire that in a sense. But it's just so inconsistent. And you cannot listen to these people's arguments anymore. You just can't. It's just like I've talked about the same things. They went into the closet, into the anti-war closet for eight years. And who was left to criticize what Obama was doing overseas? You know, you had a coalition of, I guess, some people on the right that just were going to hate what Obama did no matter what he did. And the libertarians. And, you know, maybe some far left people in the party that didn't agree with Obama. You know, there is that segment. There is that consistently anti-war segment on the left. But most of them fell right in line behind Obama. And then now what do you have happening? I'm going to talk about this later in the show. But you have Trump coming in and continuing the Obama foreign policy and instigating more fights. And now instigating fights with Iran. And, you know, the the Obama policy with Iran, you know, there were tensions there, but um, nothing really major happened on the Iran front, at least major in terms of 
negative in terms of turning in the wrong direction with Iran during Obama's presidency, but we've already got things deteriorating, already have relations with Iran deteriorating already just a few weeks into the Trump presidency. But this kind of stuff is just mind-blowing to me, how he can keep spouting this every day, and he'll tweet a hundred times in a day, and I'll just go and I'll read it if I'm really being a glutton for punishment, to read through how he can hold all these thoughts at the same time in his mind. That all of a sudden, now I care about the Constitution because it can possibly serve me in my argument where I'm calling Trump a fascist. And I can keep calling people I disagree with fascists and say that Trump is coming for the Muslims and coming for the gays. You know, that is not happening right now. We're not coming for the gays. And I say we, you know, being mainstream America. You know, mainstream America is not coming for the gays. Mainstream America is not coming for the Muslims. Um, And this is just hysteria, what's being pushed by people like Umer. And I know I spent a lot of time talking about him there, but this was the kind of reaction you got from all over the place. I could pull a bunch of headlines, but you saw it. You saw what what was being said in reaction to this. And I think it is so overblown. That doesn't detract from my original point that I think that the executive order is unconstitutional. And I'm going to talk next about why I think it's poor policy and doesn't really make sense to me. But I can have both of those thoughts and still think that the reaction is kind of out of control and is hysterical. I I know I've used roots of that word of, of hysterics a bunch of times. That's the only way I can describe the reaction to this executive order. So the third point I wanted to make is... I think this is poor policy. So if you look at the seven countries where people were being banned, people from those countries are being banned from coming into the United States for 90 days. People from those countries have not killed an American in a terrorist attack since I believe the mid 1970s. So not in recent history. So even if you accept this premise that we're all under attack by Islamic terrorists, that, you know, this is a major threat, even if we accept that premise I don't see how this fits in with that worldview. That uh, that worldview. So if you look at that time period, Saudi Arabians have killed more Americans than I believe every other country combined in terrorist attacks, and that's because that's because of 9/11, of course. But Saudi Arabian travel is not restricted. So if that's if that's the goal of this to keep Americans safe from terrorist attacks, then There are other countries that should have been on that list. But I want to talk about this notion that Islamic terrorism is a huge threat to us and that it's worth spending so much of our time worrying about and stressing out about that we may be victims of a terrorist attack. I get that these are scary. And when they happen, you know, I follow the news. I get worried. I worry about the people that are in them. And I'm sure all of you do the same thing. But the chances of you being a victim of a terrorist attack are infinitesimally small. And it's, I think one of those risks that you almost have to go about your day and accept that it's there, but there are so many larger risks facing you throughout your day. You know, the danger of you getting in a car accident and dying far outweigh the dangers of you being a victim of a terrorist attack on us soil by far. And I mean, the chance of you getting hit by a car The chances of so many things happening to you are greater than the chances of you being killed in a terrorist attack. Um, You know, now I'm not saying you, you shouldn't discount it entirely and that you shouldn't be vigilant of your surroundings, but I think it's far more productive to figure out how to arm yourself, protect yourself, you know, whether you want to get a concealed carry permit or um, you just want to be very watchful when you go out in public. That's far more productive than trying to you know lobby the government trying to lobby your elected officials to restrict people from coming into the United States I, I just don't think it's the most productive way to go about things and I think the U.S. always you know assuming that we keep kind of our cultural norms going forward maybe I'm being a little biased toward middle America rather than on the coast but we are armed and we are always going to be less vulnerable to attack than other countries where people are not armed and people are not able to fend off a potential attack or be able to head off a potential attack. Uh, So I think 
that's far more productive in us talking about, you know, how do we keep Americans safe proactively rather than trying to reactively control who comes in and, and demonize particular groups of people. And of course, I know that certain religions and certain groups of people are more likely to be terrorists than others. And I like living under Western styles of government, you know, in the tradition of, of Western thought. But I think that the best way to convert other ways of the world, I don't mean convert religiously, but I mean the best way to be at peace with the Middle East and, you know, with even radical Islamists is to hopefully accept moderate Muslims in the United States and continue to accept them and have them come and see really what Western culture is all about. Have them come and see what the United States culture is all about. And, you know, assuming that we continue to be a, a free people, uh, those are our best allies in terms of thwarting radical Islamic terrorism. You know, that's the best way to go about things. And even more importantly than that is to get the United States out of the Middle East and stop meddling over there and giving the radicals that material that they can use to basically create terrorists among, you know, young 17, 18, 19, 20 year old guys who are aimless and looking for a purpose. And you can foment this hatred by pointing to, you know, look at the United States being right here in our backyard, trying to tell us what to do, trying to determine our affairs. So I think if we can do those two things, we're doing, we're moving in the right direction, which is, I think, far more productive than just trying to restrict people from coming into the country based on certain criteria. So I think if we can do those two things, I think you accomplish the first, you accomplish the the bringing moderate Muslims in the United States and continuing to bring them into the United States by taking federal control away from immigration, giving that power back to the states, and then you will have them coming into the states that are most hospitable to them, which I think is the best policy for everyone. I want people coming to this country to be among people who are welcoming them and you know, who are going to treat them as equals. And if there are certain states that want to completely restrict immigration, that's probably not the best place for immigrants to enter into the United States. It's probably not the best place for them to live, at least not initially. Um, so I think that's the way that I'd like to see things trend. And I think that's going to do far more to not eliminate terrorism. I don't think you're ever going to eliminate terrorism, but at least eliminate the U.S. as the biggest target and I know right now Europe is far more accessible for terrorists. So that, that tends to be where where they've been targeting because it's easier to get there. There's free movement within the EU to once they, once they get in, uh, they don't have to cross an ocean. They don't have to fly into the United States. Uh, but the U.S. still, I think, is the grand target. But by getting out of the Middle East, I think, and adopting the type of immigration policy that I'm talking about, I think we no longer would be that huge target. Uh, so I think that's everything I wanted to cover on Trump's executive order. Uh, I did want to talk also about this Iran news. So there are multiple pieces to this story, but basically it started with what I just talked about and people from Iran being banned for 90 days from coming into the United States. Iran responded with a similar ban on United States, on people from the United States coming into Iran. Kind of a disproportionate effect there. I don't know a ton of Americans that are dying to go over to Iran, uh, but Iran responded in that way. And then a, a few days ago, Iran conducted a ballistics missile test. And there aren't really a lot of details about what this test was. We know that it happened. Um, the missile traveled about 600 miles before its re-entry vehicle exploded. Uh, but there aren't really many details about what exactly it was testing. Germany, so, uh, some reports came out of there that uh, a cruise missile may also have been tested during this test, but that really hasn't been confirmed. There aren't a lot of details about what Iran exactly did. 
but it's the symbolism of the whole thing that's important. And then so Mike Flynn came out, who is Trump's national security advisor. He came out and said, we are putting Iran on notice. That was his terminology. He had a longer statement, but that was the gist of it, that due to this, this missile test, they're now putting Iran on notice because it threatens U.S. interests what Iran is doing. Trump also tweeted out similar sentiments. And then Iran responded pretty quickly. Uh, a top advisor to the Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khomeini stated that the American government will understand that threatening Iran is useless, end quote. Another quote, this is not the first time that an inexperienced person has threatened Iran. Iran does not need permission from any country to defend itself. So pretty strong response from the Iranians, and it came came back pretty quickly. And then just a little while ago, so just earlier today, um, the U.S. announced new sanctions against Iran. So the notice has been delivered, and basically the sanctions, it doesn't sound like they're a huge deal. Once again, it sounds kind of symbolic what the U.S. is doing here, trying to show Iran that it's, It's not messing around. Uh, They're striking at, this is from the New York Times, striking at specific companies and arms traders from Iran to Lebanon and China. Um, And Obama had done something similar a year ago. So this kind of thing has happened before. This isn't unprecedented, these sanctions against Iran. But I am not at all a fan, and I do not like the direction that this is moving in. Another important part to this story is that Iran is planning to ditch the U.S. dollar as its reserve currency, as its currency to conduct transactions, its government to conduct transactions. So the Financial Tribune, which is an Iranian outlet, reported that it will stop using the U.S. dollar as its currency of choice in its financial and foreign exchange reports. So the central bank announced the decision on January 29th, And the change is going to take effect on March 21st. And here's a quote. Iran's difficulties in dealing with the dollar were in place from the time of the primary sanctions, and this trend is continuing. Um, And he says, when it comes to other currencies, they, quote, face no limitations. So the U.S. dollar, and talking about Federal Reserve policy and why hasn't it resulted in significant inflation or even in hyperinflation? But hyperinflation is obviously a rarity. But the Federal Reserve has basically been able to print dollars at will, essentially, for years and has been able to keep interest rates artificially low, keep rates at essentially zero for a decade. We're, we're going on at this point. One of the big reasons why we've been able to do that is because there continues to be demand for the dollar all over the world because it's the reserve currency of transactions conducted all over the world. Now, you know, is is Iran a huge player in the world and is them alone ditching the U.S. dollar, is that going to dramatically change what the dollar's value is? No. But if that entire region stops using the dollar, we could be in trouble in terms of the value of our currency because as soon as demand in those countries for the U.S. dollar goes down, where are those dollars going to go? Yes, they may go to other countries where there's still demand for it to be the reserve currency and for other central banks to hold the dollar. But a lot of it probably will come home. A lot of those dollars will come home and be spent or invested in the U.S. markets. And that will result in inflation at home. Those dollars will come home to roost. There will be more dollars in the U.S. market and prices rise as a result of additional dollars. Um, so this could be the beginning of something big. If, if Iran really does start a change of course for a lot of the Middle East countries, and they are the linchpin of, of the Middle East, basically, then we could see the hegemony of the U.S. dollar around the world start to decline. And it's not going to go on forever. The U.S. dollar is not going to continue to be the currency of choice all over the world. It's really a matter of time. It will be in the next decade or will be 50 years from now or 100 years from now before it's replaced by 
the euro or by some other currency, by the yuan or by a basket of currencies. Who really knows? But it cannot go on forever. This has been how history has transpired. Certain countries are the major power. and Their currency tends to be used in a lot of places all over the world. And then once that power is superseded by another power, another currency rises up and becomes that reserve currency all over the world. So that's how history has operated, and it's going to operate the same way for the U.S. dollar. It's just a matter of time. But for Iran, who they're a pretty big player, for them to ditch the U.S. dollar could start a domino effect. And so I'm wondering if these sanctions are more so due to Iran ditching the dollar than it is for their uh, for their weapons test, for their ballistic missile test. Because them ditching the dollar is, is far more far more impactful on actual U.S. interests than the missile test is. I, I don't want the U.S. intervening in Iran's affairs or in the countries surrounding Iran's affairs. I don't want the U.S. over there. And I try to reverse positions. Like if, I, if say the roles were reversed and Iran was trying to tell the U.S. where we could launch missile tests or, you know, where what we could test and what we could have, we would be outraged. I mean, you would have people signing up to go and fight Iran tomorrow. That's what would be happening here because nobody tells the U.S. what to do. That's how people think. But Iran doesn't want to be told what to do either. And they and they wonder, first of all, why is the U.S. so preoccupied with what we're doing? And then second of all, who are they to tell us what we can and cannot be doing? That's the reaction over there, and it's completely understandable. You know, I'm not defending everything that Iran has ever done, but Iran is not a threat to the U.S. Iran is not a threat to my life or to your life unless the United States decides to do something unbelievably stupid like invade Iran or try to engage Iran in warfare where we would probably have another draft and have people sent over to the Middle East to fight and die in that war. That's the only way that it would it would impact your life or my life. So I don't want us doing anything militarily with Iran. I don't want us to try to impose sanctions, try to do something to make them keep the dollar as their reserve currency either, because I think it's necessary what's going to happen. And the longer that we prolong basically the dollar losing its hegemony around the world, the longer that we, the longer that we avoid that transition happening and try to force other countries to continue to use it and use sanctions or whatever we can do, use our military, whatever, the longer that we try to do that, we're just going to keep kicking the can down the road of when we have to readjust. Because eventually, when that happens, there is going to be pain at home. There's going to be inflation at home. And we are going to go through a time of realignment, basically, where we have to figure out how to operate without the Fed being able to print virtually unlimited amounts of money to continue to finance government deficits, to, to continue to pay the interest on the U.S. debt and, you know, continue to, quote unquote, stimulate the economy whenever there are downturns. The Fed's not going to be able to do those kind of things anymore because the U.S. is in a completely unique position versus the rest of the world in terms of what it can do in terms of its central bank and its federal government. And that's not going to last forever. But the longer that we can avoid that realignment, the harder it's going to be. And it's already, even if it happened today, it already would be very difficult to do. It already would be a very painful process. So I just wanted to talk about that a little bit. I think that's the major foreign policy story to be watching. That's what I have my eye on. That's what I'm most worried about. You know, Iran scares me in terms of us doing something rash and invading them. They don't scare me that they're going to launch a nuclear weapon at the United States or try to invade the United States because that would be a suicide mission. No country is going to do that. But it worries me that all the saber rattlers in Trump's inner circle are kind of running the show now. And, and that's what we were talking about being scared of. I liked a lot of what Trump said when he was standing on his own before he got his team around him. But a lot of what he said was non-interventionist. And then talking about America first, America First goes back to that America First committee, which was at its core a non-interventionist movement, did not want to get involved in World War II. 
So he said a lot of things that were encouraging for people that are generally not interventionists, that, that do not want an adventurist military going all around the world, do not want an, an adventurist foreign policy. He said a lot of decent things on that topic. Far from perfect, of course, but said a lot of good things that you normally don't hear from establishment politicians. But now he's gotten into office and we've already had some interesting exchanges with China and talking about maybe taking some sort of action in the South China Sea to try to dictate what China can do with the uh, the islands that it's constructed there. And now we've had the same thing with, with sanctions put on Iran again and tough language toward Iran. So we have two examples where this already seems to be going off the off the rails in terms of foreign policy. And I'm really thinking that Trump has just let his inner circle, has let his team take the reins on this one, and he's along for the ride. And these are the people that have gotten us embroiled in conflicts time and time again. We've spent trillions of dollars in these wars that have gotten us nothing, that have made our lives worse, and that have made people in other countries hate us. So these are not the people we should be listening to. We should not be putting our trust in Mike Flynn and people that think like that. So I think that's all I wanted to do today. I went a little bit over my 30 to 45 minute threshold, but if I do another topic, I'll be talking past an hour. So I'm planning to do another one this weekend. Still so much to talk about. Had quite a bit additional on my list that I could have attacked today, but I will soon. I know I'll have to talk about the Milo Yiannopoulos incident. That'll be a fun one in terms of being able to to throw more vitriol at the left, basically, and, and how they've accepted this violence in a lot of instances. And I think the only way for the Democrats to continue to be relevant going forward into 2018 and 2020 is for them to disavow these kind of movements. Don't try to rationalize what's happening when people are violent against certain people that are coming and speaking their mind, even if you completely disagree with those people. If you try to just attack them and shut down their events and use violence Nobody is coming over to your side. You're not winning any converts by doing that. And if you look at what what happened with Milo, his book sales went up by 13,000% or something like that on Amazon overnight due to what happened. So his ideas are getting spread out more and more due to this violence. But I want to talk about that in my next show. I don't want to get too deep into into that topic, but I'll have plenty to talk about there. I want to thank you for joining me. Please go out, subscribe, iTunes, any other podcast app. And get in touch with me if you want me to talk about anything or have any sort of uh, feedback on the show. Thank you and have a fantastic weekend. Mm